Aptus, episode 131, Shipwrecked. In 1914, Sir Ernest Shackleton set out on a transatlantic expedition with the goal of being the first man, the first expedition, to cross the entire continent of Antarctica. He and his crew of 27 men sailed from England aboard a ship called the Endurance. And they had high hopes and ambitions of being this crew that was going to make this voyage a success. However, their expedition faced challenges when the Endurance became entrapped in ice in January of 1915. And what's crazy about this story is that they were trapped in this ice for months. And the ice was slowly crushing the ship. And so Shackleton and his crew made efforts to free the ship. Uh, They were unsuccessful in that endeavor. So obviously, this is a very desperate and hopeless situation. Well, it gets down to October of 1915, and the ice continues to press against the ship. So Shackleton gave orders to abandon the ship, to abandon the endurance. And now this crew tried to savage, salvage as much uh, supplies as they could, including the food, the clothing, the lifeboats, etc. The ship ultimately was crushed and would sink below the icy waters. So now they're stranded on these ice flows, off in the sea, and the men obviously faced a very, very, very uncertain future. So they set up a camp on this drifting ice, and they were just hoping that they could get closer to land. Uh, Shackleton's leadership was obviously uh, very crucial to the crew's morale. And what's crazy is, obviously, they, they kept this morale up as, as high as you could. Fast forward to April of 1916, the ice flow uh, is starting to disintegrate, and, and so now the, the crew's in trouble because the, the, the ice that they're on is starting to melt. And so they take to the lifeboats. They navigate the treacherous waters. Uh, obviously, you're talking about freezing temperatures, high wind, waves. I mean, the sea around Antarctica is some of the most dangerous waters in the world. And they finally are able to reach a desolated island called Elephant Island off the coast of, of Antarctica in April of 1916. So, I mean, this is well over a year after getting stuck in the ice. Okay, realizing that their rescue was unlikely off of this island, Shackleton and five of his men embarked an even more dangerous journey. They set out in a lifeboat that was a whole 22 feet long on a voyage of 720 miles across the South Atlantic to reach a whaling station on a South Georgia island. You know, after 16 days at sea, Against all the odds, Shackleton and his small crew successfully reached South Georgia. You know, and then they had to go over, you know, landscape till they could get to this welling station. I mean, this is just an unbelievable journey. Shackleton, despite his weakened state, he organizes a rescue crew to go back and get the remaining men on Elephant Island. After four t- attempts, they finally reach it in August of 1916, nearly two years after getting stuck in the ice i mean this is just an incredible story and obviously shackleton was an exceptional leader his crew had an unbelievable resilience to be able to survive in such a terrible situation and while this is a really cool story the fact of the matter is they could have easily died you know when you hear stories like this you always say man wow look at that leadership look at the endurance etc But the truth of the matter is, is that they were in a very dangerous situation because being shipwrecked is dangerous, let alone being shipwrecked in Antarctica. And they could have very well lost their lives. So while Shackleton gets a lot of credit for his leadership, there's no doubt that the Lord was with the crew. Otherwise, they'd be dead. 
And the truth of the matter is this, that there is an inherent danger of being shipwrecked in ministry. Like we just have to realize that we are in dangerous waters when we set out on this voyage of ministry and we could end up shipwrecked at any moment. And so our goal should be as leaders to avoid being shipwrecked. You know, a good captain is going to know the landmarks, the seas, and the dangers of the voyage. And a good captain is going to navigate accordingly so that they don't endanger the ship or the cargo. And listen to me, you and I are the captains of the ship. Our responsibility is to know the seas that we're in, to know the dangers that are in those seas, and we need to navigate accordingly so that we don't endanger the ministry that we've been assigned to, and we don't endanger the crew that has been assigned to work with us. Now, in Acts chapter number 27, we read about the Apostle Paul and his shipwreck experience. Um, We don't have time to read that whole account. You know it well. At this point in his life, he has been arrested by the Jews. They're seeking the death penalty. He has appealed to Caesar, and the Romans are taking him as prisoner to Rome to uh, defend himself before Caesar. And on this voyage, the progress is not going as fast as the centurion would like. Um, uh, like a lot of leaders, the, 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 the captain of the boat, the centurion, uh, don't understand timing. Uh, I can struggle with that personally. They, they are in a port that they don't want to stay in in the wintertime. So they decide against the sound wisdom from Paul and, you know, just sounds like conventional wisdom. Uh, they set out in the wrong season to try to make it a little farther on this voyage because they want to win, winter in a better port. And so they set out to sail in the wrong season. And as you know, as they set out to sail, everything looks really good in the beginning of that journey. But then a storm hits Paul and this ship, and for the next 14 days, they're in the storm. And ultimately, this, sh- this uh, boat shipwrecks on the island of Malta. You know, Paul is shipwrecked because a captain didn't understand his circumstances. He wasn't aware of the dangers, and he allowed his impatience to derail his mission. And here's the principle for all of us. As I said a moment ago, we are the captain of the boat that God has assigned to us. This is the work of the Lord. We're only in this leadership because the Lord desires it. You are here. You are where you're at because the Lord wants you here. But we have a responsibility to pilot this boat into safe harbors. And so we need to be aware of the islands that we could potentially shipwreck on so we don't have to then play Ernest Shackleton on a rescue mission. You know, while Shackleton's story is inspirational, you don't want that to be your story of leadership. Now, with that, I read a book the other day entitled Raise to Stay, and it is probably one of the best church ministry-related books I have ever read. In fact, if you want a copy of this book, just text me personally, and I will buy it for you and ship it to you, okay? So it is an amazing book. It's about a lady that's talking about the dynamics and the reality of ministry. She grew up in a pastor's home, Uh, her dad... Uh, loved the church. She loved the church. Uh, everybody loved the church. But when she was a, a junior in high school, I believe um, her family showed up at church one day. Dad was about ready to go preach, and and they were met by the board. And the board took him to his office and said, "This morning you're resigning." And so she's just kind of walking through that. Uh, the author just says some unbelievably great things in in this book. Well, one of the things she talks about is the ministry traps that we can fall into, and she presented three traps three islands that we can get shipwrecked on. And I'd like to share those with you. And then I'd like to add a couple of my own. 
just that I feel like is important for us to remember. So here's some islands as, as we are captaining and we're piloting the boat that God has made us responsible for. Here's some islands that we want to be aware of so that we don't get, we don't get stuck. We don't get shipwrecked on those islands. And the first island is this, is the island of offense. Now, the island of offense is an island that we all have a tendency to crash into from time to time. Because frankly, people can be rude, people can be mean-spirited, people can uh, be unsaved and still be in the church. And as such, we're going to experience things from God's people. Uh, Some are God's people, some are not God's people, but we're going to experience things from people that is going to want to offend us. And sometimes that is a legitimate offense, and sometimes, frankly, our own sensibilities uh, will cause us to be offended when we shouldn't be. So when we find ourselves on the island of offense, the danger is that our ability to love others is shipwrecked. You're never going to fulfill your ministry calling with an attitude of offense. We're, we're just not going to be able to do it because when that offense starts to settle into our heart, it's going to start to quench and choke out our love for the very people that we are called to serve. One of the things that the author said in this book is she made the observation that Jesus knew Judas was betraying him. He had already made arrangements to betray Jesus, and then he is there at the Last Supper. And Jesus is washing his feet. He's feeding him communion. I mean, all this stuff. And so the question is, how could Jesus do that knowing that Judas had betrayed him? And the answer is this, is that Jesus was not going to allow Judas's sin to distract him from his mission. And the fact of the matter is when we get when we get offended at people, we get distracted from our mission, and we can't do that. Now, the truth is we do get offended because we are human. And I suspect that a lot of us struggle with this more than we realize. When you think about the Lord's Prayer, it's just not that long. And yet one of the things that the Lord tells us to pray every single day is forgive me of my sins as I forgive those who have sinned against me. And what that means is I need to search my heart every day and make sure that I'm not carrying bitterness in my heart. And if Christ, tell, if, if Christ told me to pray that every day, then that must mean that I need a daily check to make sure that I'm not offended at another person. Now, the fact is we're all going to get offended because we're human. That's normal. That's natural. However, when we stay offended, then our actions indicate we do not understand the gospel. What is the gospel? That we were sinners. And Christ came and took our place on that cross. And through his grace and his mercy, our faith and repentance in him, he gives us eternal life. And if, if, if we understand the gospel, then we understand that Jesus paid a higher price for our forgiveness than any price we will ever pay to forgive someone else. And so we are denying the gospel when we stay on the island of offense and we are hamstringing our own ministry. Second island that the author points out is the island of self-promotion. Now, this one was, of all the things she said in the book, this one might have been my favorite. She, she talked about how we live in a digital age. You know, the generations that came before us, there, there was not social media, you know, instant gratification to be able to see what was out there, all this type of stuff. And now we live in this digital age where at any moment, 
with the click of a mouse or click of your finger on your phone screen, you can start to see what the church up the road is doing. You can see their massive production. You can listen to sound bites from their great preacher. You can listen to their amazing worship band. All of these things can, can start to happen at the just at snap of your finger. And there you go. You are, have access to everything that you want. And what happens is, is that in that moment, we start to allow our eyes to wander to what God is doing somewhere else. And the author makes this point. Sometimes we don't get shipwrecked because we're in a storm. Sometimes we get shipwrecked because our eyes wander and we get off course. And the danger is, is that we can start to get addicted to, quote, worship pornography. Worship pornography. And what worship pornography is, is when I look over at what God's doing with his bride over there, that becomes more attractive to me than what God is doing in my ministry right where I'm at. So I start seeing what God is doing over there, and I say, man, I wish I had that, and I don't love the portion of the bride that the Lord has given me where I'm at. I, I look over there, and I hear how that worship team sounds. I'm like, man, I wish I wish we had that. We, we start playing this comparison game, and what we're doing is we are, we are getting attracted to the part of the body of Christ that the Lord has not made us responsible for. Frankly, we're getting attracted to someone else's wife instead of being focused on the part of the bride that the Lord has placed us in responsibility to. So we need to be careful about this. And so what happens is in this moment is we want to be a part of what God is doing over there. And so we start desiring to be used the way other people are used. We're starting to desire to have platforms that they are getting. We, 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 we wish that we were a part of that. And the truth of the matter is, as the author went on to say, is that the church is not a talent agency. The ministry is not a stage for us to showcase our talents and our skills. And the moment that the ministry becomes about us is the moment that I'm prostituting the church for my own pleasure. And so we need to be careful of this because we are going to shipwreck ourselves when we desire to have something that God has not yet brought us. We're desiring self-promotion. The third thing that the author said is we can shipwreck ourselves on the island of lost boys and girls. And this is obviously a play on the Peter Pan analogy. And the author said that sometimes we can be intimidated by another generation and we can avoid learning wisdom from those who have gone before us or fail to gain energy from those coming behind us. Um, and I don't see that really being a huge problem in our context here at JFA. I think we have a very diverse demographic within our church, and I'm, I'm excited about that. In my opinion, we are more in danger of drifting too far ahead of the generation behind us and leaving them behind. Man, this happens so many times in churches. A generation of young leaders comes along. They're doing a kingdom work. God is moving, but they, they're aging. You know, I mean, they're getting older. I mean, they forget that there's a generation behind them. And they wake up one day and they realize, dang, we're old and we haven't reached the young people behind us. And, and sometimes it can get too late. And I'm not talking about youth ministry. I'm not talking about kids ministry. I mean, almost every church has some form of youth ministry and kids ministry. I'm talking about creating space for that 20 to 30-year-old age. That's a very difficult age to relate to. It's a very difficult age to bring to the table. But here's the danger. We, 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 we fail to reach that generation, so we wake up when we're 50 60, 70, and we realize we don't speak the same language. We don't understand their values. The methods aren't resonating. And now we have shipwrecked ourselves 
onto a demographic isolated island. And the temptation might be to say, well, that's not important. However, on the day of Pentecost, when, when Peter stood up to preach the gospel, one of the things that he made very clear is that this is for you and your sons and your daughters. So we have to be active today figuring out how we're going to reach the generation that is immediately behind us. It's very easy to reach the kids because we have kids. It's easy to reach the youth because they're fun to hang out with. It's very difficult to reach those people that are five, six, seven, eight, nine years right behind you. Now, I want to add three more islands here that I think are important um, that I, I think we need to be aware of. The fourth island we want to be careful of is, is, is the critical spirit. Uh, now, look, I'm, I'm looking at myself in the mirror on this, and I'm, I'm trying to be honest with you, uh, and I think that you might be able to identify with me, but pastors can easily develop critical spirits. I mean, we're just really good at diagnosing what's wrong. Pastors are really good at nitpicking someone else's flaws. Pastors are really good at saying what should be happening in a particular person's life or perhaps a ministry or a church. And here's the danger. A lot of the times when we're diagnosing what's wrong, nitpicking flaws, saying what should happen, we're probably right. That's what's dangerous is that we're probably right. And because we are right, we are validating and justifying our critical spirit. Being right doesn't always produce the right results. And we need to be aware of that danger because it can shipwreck us very quickly. The fact of the matter is that a critical spirit is not conducive for producing a healthy, sustainable ministry because a critical spirit repels the right people and attracts the wrong people into your life, into your ministry. You know, and, and, and so we need to be aware of this danger so that we don't, we don't fall into this trap. You know, when we're raising our kids, we have a high level of grace, instruction, and understanding, particularly when they're very little. So think about when your kids start to walk. You know, they're, they're 9, 10, 11, 12 months old. Uh, they stand up the first time, their legs are wobbly, and they take two steps, and they fall down, and we're cheering for them. Hey, you can do it. You can keep walking. It's one of the most special things to watch your kid take their first steps. And yet, at the same time in the church, we tend to take baby Christians and baby leaders who are just getting up on wobbly legs, they take one or two steps and then they fall, and we get irritated at them because they're immature. They fall because they didn't communicate properly. They fall because they, they had a moment of arrogance, or they, they fall because they had a slip of the tongue. You, you know, all these little minor things, and we just get irritated at them for being immature. And if we did that to our kids, every time they fell down while they were trying to learn to walk, they never learned to walk. And the truth of the matter is we have a generation of leaders that are never going to be developed and released into ministry because we've been so critical of their immaturity that we've never given them time to get their legs underneath them. When we're unnecessarily critical, we are shutting the doors on our leadership voice and we are shipwrecking ourselves because no one's going to want to be around us. And the worst thing is, as I said a moment ago, you're going to attract the critical people also around your life because criticism attracts criticism. And when you're really critical and you're articulate in your criticism, there's going to be a lot of people that rally around you because they like what they hear. That's drama of their life. But here's the problem. Critical people always turn on each other, and before long, they will turn on you. Fifth island that we get stuck on is that of a stunted mind. I think the biggest struggle that any pastor is going to wrestle with is complacency. I think every single pastor has three to five years of really good ministry ideas in their life. Uh, however you're going to burn through those pretty quick. I mean, three to five years just flies by. Given enough time, everyone will run out of good ideas, sermons, counsel, and we're going to be required to reinvent ourselves. 
You know, if, if you have three to five years of, of anointing, chances are you're, you're going to have had some success. So you can kind of coast in the glory of yesterday for a while. However, nobody wants to get stuck in the stagnant mind. You know, Jesus was really clear. He said that, that you don't put new wine in old wineskins. And the fact of the matter is, if the Lord is going to deposit something new in your life, then you're going to have to become a new vessel. I mean, just wrap your mind around that for a second. You are not qualified today for what God wants to do in your life five years from now. For, for that to happen, he's going to have to create in you a new vessel. And that reinvention, that, that pruning off of the old growth, that, that refreshing, renewal, refilling of the Holy Spirit, of his anointing of his word, that's not always a fun process to go through. But that's what's going to be required if we're going to continue to allow the, work, the Lord to work through us. So we are going to have to stop and reinvent ourselves from time to time. We're going to have to stop and reinvent our ministry. We're going to have to look and make sure that we're not falling back on old strategies that are no longer working. We can't live off of yesterday's wine and get dry. And so the challenge for us is that we're going to continue to have to learn new things from the Lord. Lord, open up your word to my heart again. God, refill me with your spirit. God, show me the methods that you want me to run with in the next three to five years. Give me fresh ideas, fresh vision. This, this sounds fun, but it, if you've ever gone through it, and I've gone through it a couple of times in my ministry because I've stuck around at some places for a while, that, that's, that's a hard thing to do. That's a very difficult thing to do. And every time you have to do it, it gets harder. It gets harder. Sixth and finally, the island of distraction. I won't, I won't camp out here long, but... The fact of the matter is we get so busy that we shipwreck ourselves on the island of distraction. We, we are the proverbial hamster on the wheel where we're just running from one event to that meeting and from that meeting to the next counseling session, from the next counseling session to the next sermon writing moment. We're just going in circles. There's no overarching strategy. There's no overarching vision. We are very, very busy, but we're actually not doing anything. And basically, the enemy has placed us on a, a little island in the middle of nowhere, and we're just running the coastline of that island in circles over and over and over and over and over again. And we get frustrated because we're not making any sort of progress. Sometimes we have, to, we have to go to the Lord and say, Lord, I need to get out of this cycle. I need to say no to some things, and I need to get headed in the right direction. So I want to wrap it up with this. Which island are you in danger of crashing onto? I mean, of these six, and maybe there's one that I didn't even talk about. Which island are you in danger of crashing onto? Here's the deal. If you haven't crashed on that island yet, it's time to turn the rudder and to avoid the crash. If you are on this island, then it's time to pull a Shackleton, get on the lifeboat, and start rowing. And, and that's going to be hard. It's going to be scary, but sometimes you have to row and get back to land so that you can get your feet underneath you. You know, the truth of the matter is those at Shackleton did get off the island. Paul did get off the island. And so while we want to avoid crashing the island, I think God's faithful that when we do, he helps us get off of there. God bless you. <laughs>